Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Christabel. Christabel was written by Coleridge in 1797 and is one of three supernatural poems that he wrote along with Kubla Khan and The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Coleridge had originally intended for it to be part of the lyrical ballads, possibly as the closing poem, but Wordsworth considered it unsuitable and substituted his own poem, Michael, instead. Unlike Kubla Khan, Christabel is not a fragment, but is unfinished, incomplete. It simply ends, leaving matters unresolved. Christabel is a narrative poem in the Gothic tradition. Some reviewers were very critical of the poem, calling it disgusting and obscene. In Coleridge's introduction, he makes a disclaimer about the meter of the poem. It's based, according to Coleridge, more on accents than syllables, so there's more variation. But while not metrically regular, it is rhythmic, and in fact the rhythm is usually tailored to fit the subject matter, and is influenced by sound patterns as well. It's quite innovative and anticipates what will later be termed sprung rhythm by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Also, Coleridge's references to four stresses per line is a bit reminiscent of Anglo-Saxon poetry, although that was based more on alliteration. The poem places much emphasis on atmosphere. It begins at midnight. There are references to owls, the mastiff growling at phantoms, moaning winds, dreams, prayers, appeals to Jesus and Mary, and a sudden appearance of a woman in white. The narrator seems uncertain of what is going on and asks questions. He seems unable to think badly of Geraldine. The name Christabel may be derived from two figures in the Bible, Christ, an innocent whose suffering led to redemption, and Abel, an innocent victim who was slain by his brother Cain. We'll begin the poem with some atmospherics. Please note that there are some different versions of the poem, and I'm using the 1816 text. Part 1. Tis the middle of the night by the castle clock, and the owls have awakened the crowing cock, to wit, to woo, and hark again the crowing cock how drowsily it crew. Sir Leoline, the baron rich, hath a toothless mastiff bitch. From her kennel beneath the rock she maketh answer to the clock, four for the quarters and twelve for the hour, ever and I, by shine and shower, sixteen short howls, not over loud. Some say she sees my lady's shroud. Is the night chilly and dark? The night is chilly, but not dark. Notice here Coleridge's use of somewhat archaic language and these questions from the narrator, is the night chilly and dark? The night is chilly, but not dark. The name Sir Leoline suggests someone who is lion-like from Leo the Lion. And so we find on this midnight, the lovely Lady Christabel, whom her father loves so well, what makes her in the wood so late, a furlong from the castle gate, she had dreams all yesternight of her own betrothed knight. 
dreams that made her moan and leap as on her bed she lay in sleep and she in the midnight wood will pray for the wheel of her lover that's far away. So Christabel is apparently wandering in the woods at midnight for no really good reason. And suddenly, as she kneels before a huge oak tree, she kneels beneath the huge oak tree and in silence prayeth she, the lady leaps up suddenly, the lovely lady Christabel. It moaned as near as near can be, but what it is, she cannot tell. And on the other side of the oak tree, where the lovely Christabel is praying, reading it about line 60, what sees she there? There she sees a damsel bright, dressed in a silken robe of white. Her neck, her feet, her arms were bare, and the jewels disordered in her hair. I guess t'was fearful there to see a lady so richly clad as she, beautiful exceedingly. Mary, mother, save me now, said Christabel. And who art thou? The lady appears almost as an apparition, saying that her name is Geraldine and that she is from a noble family. She says that she had been seized by warriors and carried off the day before, and that her kidnappers have left her there. The first hints that Geraldine may be more than she seems occur when she needs to be helped to her feet in line 100. Stretch forth thy hand, thus ended she, and help a wretched maid to flee. Then Christabel stretched forth her hand and comforted fair Geraldine. They proceed to return to the castle, where Christabel takes the key to the gate. A little door she opened straight, all in the middle of the gate, the gate that was ironed within and without, where an army in battle array had marched out. The lady sank belike through pain, and Christabel with might and main lifted her up a weary weight over the threshold of the gate. Then the lady rose again and moved as she were not in pain. So Geraldine has to be helped across the threshold. This is suggestive of the mythology of the vampire having to be helped or invited across the threshold. When they enter the castle, and Christabel devoutly cried to the lady by her side, Praise we the Virgin, all divine, who hath rescued thee from thy distress. Alas, alas, said Geraldine, I cannot speak for weariness. So Geraldine is unable to praise the Virgin Mary. The omens begin to accumulate now as they pass the kennel where the old toothless mastiff bitch lies. The mastiff old did not awake, Yet she an angry moan did make, and what can ail the mastiff bitch? Never till now she uttered yell beneath the eye of Christabel. Perhaps it is the owlet scritch, for what can ail the mastiff bitch? A few lines later, the two women are passing by the dying brands or firebrands, wood that was lit for illumination. The brands were flat, the brands were dying, amid their own white ashes lying. But when the lady passed, there came a tongue of light, a fit of flame. So the flaring of the light of the fire as Geraldine passes by suggests something hellish. Similarly, when they enter Christabel's chamber, there is another portent about Geraldine. Christabel has a lamp that is fastened to an angel's feet hanging from a chain. As Christabel trims the lamp, it begins to swing on its chain. 
She trimmed the lamp and made it bright and left it swinging to and fro, while Geraldine, in wretched plight, sank down upon the floor below. Here, the swinging lamp seems to afflict Geraldine. Christabel pours out some cordial wine that was made by her mother, who died in childbirth. Christabel remarks wistfully, O oh, mother dear, that thou wert here. And apparently she is, at least in spirit, and Geraldine perceives her around line 199. Off, wandering mother, peak and pine, I have power to bid thee flee. Alas, what ails poor Geraldine? Why stares she with unsettled eye? Can she the bodiless dead espy? And why with hollow voice cries she, Off, woman, off, this hour is mine. Though thou her guardian spirit be, Off, woman, off, tis given to me. Coleridge has inserted a marginal note here telling the reader that this is indeed the spirit of Christabel's mother. Christabel raises Geraldine up. We have now had a whole series of signs and omens that Geraldine is not human, but something creepy. Near the end of the first part of the poem, the two retire to bed, and the narrator becomes more explicit about this, suggesting that Geraldine is able to work some kind of spell upon Christabel. Beginning at line 239, Beneath the lamp, the lady bowed and slowly rolled her eyes around, then drawing in her breath aloud like one that shuddered, she unbound the cincture from beneath her breast. Her silken robe and inner vest dropped to her feet, and full in view, behold, her bosom and half her side, a sight to dream of, not to tell. And she is to sleep by Christabel. She took two paces and a stride, and lay down by the maiden's side, and in her arms the maid she took, ah, well a day, and with low voice and doleful look, these words did say, In the touch of this bosom there worketh a spell, which is lord of thy utterance, Christabel, thou knowest to-night, and wilt know to-morrow the mark of thy shame, this, this seal of my sorrow. But vainly thou warrest, for this is alone in thy power to declare that in the dim forest thou heardst a low moaning and foundst a bright lady surpassingly fair, and didst bring her home with thee in love and in charity to shield her and shelter her from the damp air. Part two of the poem opens with the matin bells and the baron, that is Christabel's father, mourning the loss of his wife who had died bringing Christabel into the world. He says his prayers each day at the appropriate hours using his prayer beads. At the same time, the two women awake. Geraldine awakens first at line 350. And Geraldine shakes off her dread and rises lightly from the bed, puts on her silken vestments white, and tricks her hair in lovely plight, and nothing doubting of her spell, awakens the lady Christabel. Notice here another reference to a spell. Sleep you, sweet Lady Christabel, I trust that you have rested well. And Christabel awoke and spied the same who lay down by her side. Oh, rather say, the same whom she raised up beneath the old oak tree. Nay, fairer yet, and yet more fair, for she belike hath drunken deep of all the blessedness of sleep, 
And while she spake, her looks, her air, such gentle thankfulness declare that, so it seemed, her girded vests grew tight beneath her heaving breasts. Sure, I have sinned, said Christabel. Now heaven be praised if all be well. And in low faltering tones, yet sweet, did she the lofty lady greet with such perplexity of mind as dreams too lively leave behind. So quickly she rose and quickly arrayed her maiden limbs, and having prayed that he who on the cross did groan might wash away her sins unknown, she forthwith led fair Geraldine to meet her sire, Sir Leoline. Apparently, Christabel is troubled by something. She has no memory of what passed between the two in the night, but she does feel that something happened and she feels guilty about it. She has a sense that she has sinned and prays fervently that her unremembered sins will be forgiven. As the two enter the hall, the narrator shifts to the present tense in line 381. The lovely maid and the lady tall are pacing both into the hall and pacing on through page and groom enter the baron's presence room. Well, the baron greets them and hearing Geraldine's tale triggers an old and unpleasant memory. Geraldine's father had once been an old friend of Leoline's, but something had happened between them that caused a falling out, and they haven't been in contact for years, despite being relatively near neighbors. That is all in the past, though, and now, seeing his former friend's daughter, at line 415, Sir Leoline, a moment's space, stood gazing on the damsel's face, and the youthful lord of Triermaine came back upon his heart again. So the old grievances seem forgotten, and he is now enraged that such a thing could have happened to the daughter of his old friend. He vows revenge upon her abductors, promising, at line 432, dislodge their reptile souls from the bodies and forms of men. He spake his eyes in lightning rolls, for the lady was ruthlessly seized, and he kenned in the beautiful lady the child of his friend. And now the tears were on his face, and fondly in his arms he took fair Geraldine, who met the embrace, prolonging it with joyous look. So the two, Leoline and Geraldine, are hugging, and now the narrator shifts the point of view several times in the passage that follows. Prolonging it with joyous look, which when she viewed a vision fell upon the soul of Christabel, the vision of fear, the touch and pain, she shrunk and shuddered and saw again Ah, woe is me, was it for thee, thou gentle maid, such sights to see? Again she saw that bosom old, again she felt that bosom cold, and drew in her breath with a hissing sound, whereat the knight turned wildly round, and nothing saw but his own sweet maid, with eyes upraised as one that prayed. Apparently, as Christabel sees the two of them embracing, it triggers a memory of something that happened during the preceding night. So instead of Geraldine being beautiful and young, there are these references to a bosom old and a bosom cold. Christabel begins to draw in her breath with a sort of hissing sound reminiscent of snakes. That touch 
the sight had passed away, and in its stead that vision blessed, which comforted her after rest, while in the lady's arms she lay, had put a rapture in her breast, and on her lips and o'er her eyes spread smiles like light. The memory of the night before fades, and Christabel is left in almost a kind of post-coital delight, such as she had experienced the night before. "'What ails then, my beloved child?' the baron said. His daughter mild made answer, "'All will yet be well. I ween she had no power to tell aught else, so mighty was the spell.' Yet he who saw this Geraldine had deemed her sure a thing divine. Such sorrow with such grace she blended, as if she feared she had offended sweet Christabel, that gentle maid. So the viewpoint shifts to the baron, whose head is completely turned by Geraldine here. And she's a smooth talker, saying that she hopes nothing she said had offended Christabel. The baron calls one of his servants, Bracy, whom he plans to send out as a herald or messenger. Bracy tells him, beginning at line 515, of an unusual dream that he has had. This day my journey should not be, so strange a dream hath come to me, that I had vowed with music loud to clear yon wood from thing unblessed, warned by a vision in my rest, for in my sleep I saw that dove, that gentle bird whom thou dost love, and caused by thy own daughter's name. Sir Leoline, I saw the same fluttering and uttering fearful moan among the green herbs in the forest alone, which, when I saw and when I heard, I wondered what might ail the bird, for nothing near it could I see, save the grass and green herbs underneath the old tree. And in my dream, methought I went to search out what might be found, and what the sweet bird's trouble meant, that thus lay fluttering on the ground. I went and peered, and could descry no cause for her distressful cry. But yet for her dear lady's sake, I stooped, methought the dove to take, when, lo, I saw a bright green snake coiled around its wing and neck, green as the herbs on which it couched, close by the dove's its head it crouched, and with the dove it heaves and stirs, swelling its neck as she swelled hers. I woke. It was the midnight hour. The clock was echoing in the tower, but though my slumber was gone by, this dream it would not pass away. It seems to live upon my eye. Bracy's dream is of a dove, and Bracy even tells Sir Leoline that the dove represents his daughter in the grip of a green snake. And here we should consider the mythology of the Lamia, which is one of the supernatural creatures that Keats wrote about in his poem, Lamia. Sometimes it's pronounced Lamia, but more often Lamia. The creature is half woman, half serpent, but is evidently able to change shape. According to Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, lamia comes from a Greek word meaning voracious or gluttonous. For the Greeks and the Romans, lamiae were female demons who devoured children. Originally, lamia was a Libyan queen and lover of Jupiter, but jealous Juno robbed her of her children. This drove her insane, and she vowed vengeance on children. The race of Lamii in Africa had the heads and breasts of women, but bodies of serpents.
In Keats's poem from 1820, a bride is recognized as a lamia and when denounced vanishes instantly, but the bridegroom dies. In the Middle Ages, witches were sometimes called lamiae. Bracy's dream, which was so vivid that he still sees it when awake, tells him that Sir Leoline's daughter Christabel is in great danger. Thus Bracy said, the baron, the while half listening, heard him with a smile, then turned to Lady Geraldine, his eyes made up of wonder and love, and said in courtly accents fine, sweet maid, Lord Roland's beauteous dove, with arms more strong than harp or song, thy sire and I will crush the snake. He kissed her forehead as he spake, and Geraldine in maiden wise, Casting down her large bright eyes, with blushing cheeks and courtesy fine, she turned her from Sir Leoline. Softly gathering up her train, that o'er her right arm fell again, and folded her arms across her chest, and couched her head upon breast. Well, the baron completely misses the point. He's so besotted with Geraldine at this point, that he sees her as the dove, in the deadly embrace of the serpent, not his own daughter, even though Bracy made that connection very clear. Geraldine, for her part, is rolling her eyes and blushing. She knows all the tricks. Geraldine steals a glance at Christabel and looked askance at Christabel. Jesu Maria, shield her well. A snake's small eye blinks dull and shy, and the lady's eyes they shrunk in her head, each shrunk up to a serpent's eye, and with somewhat of malice and more of dread, at Christabel she looked askance. One moment, and the sight was fled, but Christabel, in dizzy trance, stumbling on the unsteady ground, shuddered aloud with a hissing sound, and Geraldine again turned round, and like a thing that thought, sought relief, full of wonder and full of grief, she rolled her large, bright eyes divine wildly on Sir Leoline. Christabel has apparently had a brief vision of Geraldine in her true form as a serpent and faints again with a hissing sound that suggests she is taking on these serpentine characteristics. The maid, alas, her thoughts are gone. She nothing sees, no sight but one. The maid, devoid of guile and sin, I know not how, in fearful wise, so deeply had she drunken in that look, those shrunken serpent eyes, that all her features were resigned to this sole image in her mind, and passively did imitate that look of dull and treacherous hate, and thus she stood in dizzy trance, still picturing that look askance, with forced unconscious sympathy, full before her father's view, as far as such a look could be in eyes so innocent and blue. But when the trance was over, the maid paused a while and inly prayed, then falling at her father's feet, by my mother's soul do I entreat that thou this woman send away, she said, and more she could not say, for what she knew she could not tell, or mastered by the mighty spell, why is thy cheek so wan and wild, Sir Leoline? Thy only child lies at thy feet, thy joy, thy pride, so fair, so innocent, so mild, the same for whom thy lady died. Oh, by the pangs of her dear mother, think thou no evil of thy child. 
but evidently Sir Leoline is so far under Geraldine's spell that he cannot even look at his daughter the same way. In line 628, we are told, his heart was cleft with pain and rage, his cheeks they quivered, his eyes were wild, dishonored thus in his old age, dishonored by his only child, and all his hospitality to the insulted daughter of his friend, by more than woman's jealousy, brought thus to a disgraceful end, he rolled his eye with stern regard upon the gentle minstrel bard, and said in tones abrupt austere, Why, Bracy, dost thou loiter here? I bade thee hence, the bard obeyed, and returning from his own sweet maid, the aged knight, Sir Leoline, led forth the lady, Geraldine. So he turns away from his own daughter in distress and is leading forth the lady, Geraldine. The poem ends at this point, just as things are looking rather bad for our heroine. What is it that happened during the night between Christabel and Geraldine? It's never revealed, but it's something mysterious and darkly erotic. Except for brief flashes, Christabel can't recall due to the spell, but she feels guilt and prays for forgiveness. The reptilian hissing that we heard is actually by Christabel, implying that she's somehow intertwined with Geraldine. She has flashbacks and half remembers what happened in the night and then is under Geraldine's spell again. The mythology of the vampire suggests that something happened along these lines, which would explain why Geraldine seems to look so much healthier and more beautiful in the morning, while Christabel seems haggard, weak, and pale. This would also fit the eroticism that we often associate with vampires, at least from the time of Dracula. Marginal glosses that Coleridge added in the later version of 1824 encouraged the belief of Geraldine as a witch, but she seems to better fit the definition of a vampire. Yet the serpent imagery is strongly suggestive of the Lamia myth. Whatever it was that happened between the two women, it certainly offended Coleridge's critics, especially with the poem's suggestions of some kind of lesbian relationship between the two. And we never know what Coleridge intended to make of it, since he left no remaining notes or manuscripts to indicate his intention, leaving us with a mystery. <laughs> 